For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to the All-American Brit Podcast on the Believe Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Johnny McEwen. Going to get to all the big stories in the world of Premier League football with Wilfred Lawrence, one of my favorite guests to have on the show. We're going to get into all the action of football, and maybe you want to feel a part of the action, and you can, because Bet Online remains the number one spot for all things sports betting this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BELIEVE50 to receive your bonus. All the biggest teams in sport, all in one place, and that place is Bet Online. It's the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports. It's Bet Online, where the game starts. Wilfred Lawrence rejoins me on the podcast. It's great to have him back on the show. So many interesting storylines from the world of Premier League football to get into. Wilf has been a contributing writer to Fansided and the Pride of London. He's also the co-host of the podcast South Dakota Loves Benucci. I sat down with Wilf to get into all the biggest stories and teams in the Premier League. Uh, this, one of the busiest parts of the Premier League season. So here it is, my chat with Wilfred Lawrence. Hey, Wilf, great to have you back on the podcast. Let's start how I usually like to start when I get a chance to talk to you. We're both Chelsea Football Club fans, and um, I'd love to know what you've made of the season so far from Chelsea, and I'd love to know what your thoughts are on kind of the identity of Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea. He kind of was parachuted in in January, took over for Frank Lampard. There were lots of... Some fans were disappointed to see the legend not kind of come through and you know, be the Chelsea manager, Thomas Tuchel swoops in. Obviously, we had an amazing finish and, you know, Champions League and all of that. But now we've kind of seen him settle into his role. He's recognised as one of the best managers in the Premier League. I'd love to know what you think of Tuchel's Chelsea and what the identity of that really is. I think, for me, Tuchel's Chelsea is all about the defence, actually, and and the way in which he's he's turned a really struggling defence. You know, under Lampard, we were kind of, it was like, shipping three, maybe we'll score four kind of football. Um, and the way in which she's transformed that through Thiago Silva, giving Thiago Silva the help around him to really make him excel. You know, at 37 for Silva to still be doing what he's doing is, is a kind of miracle coaching job, I think. Um, and obviously they have such a, a great relationship having been together at PSG. And um, I, yeah, I just think having built from that foundation, we, we've now been able to see the the team we kind of thought we would under Lampard that when you brought in all those names the Verners the Havertzes the Pulisic's the ZX you know all of them coming together and I think he's the way in which he's helped bring those stars to the fore 
whilst also keeping the academy at the forefront of what he's doing is a kind of master. I, I, I don't think I've seen a coaching job like that. To be able to keep all those players on side, keep the fans on side mm -hmm. with the young English talent, whilst also keeping you know all these big money signings on side and kind of keeping it in this constantly manipulated, moving team that is great on transition and really solid at the back. Um, when some might say we don't have the right to be, I think our defenders are some of the best in the world. But I think if you'd asked me that a year ago, would I say that of Rudiger, Christensen, Silva? No. So I think just the way in which he's improved these players um, and set up a real identity, a real defensive identity with this ability to play incredible football on the break and, and control games when, when, we, when we want to. I think that's his, that's his greatest asset is his, his flexibility. He's not a Klopp or Guardiola who has this stringent ideology. He approaches games with different mindsets you know we see against Juventus especially in that second leg I just think you saw how in the first leg we approached it more cautiously um, and it didn't pay off and they got us on the break and we just kind of didn't have that cutting edge so in the second leg or the second group stage game he just takes over the game he just from the office like we're just going to press you we're going to complete you know we're going to get Jorginho to dictate the tempo you're not going to touch the ball and they they didn't have a sniff did they and that was probably the best hmm. Chelsea performance I've seen in what five ten years I mean literally that it's really hmm. that was in, incredible you know generational stuff um, so I think that coming in his what 50th game 100th game in charge what was it <laughs> was it his 50th or 100th 50th, 50th yeah, yeah. yeah his that coming in his 50th game in charge really just set that that was the you know the icing on the cake for the two cool the two cool you know, tenure i think he's done you know an amazing job and you know i think one of the it's a very simple thing when you think about it but a, a half-time talk and a team coming out and looking different sounds pretty obvious but it's actually really hard to get that out of players and you see a lot of players come out with you know a ton of energy in that first 10 minutes of the second half but there's actually not there's nothing's really changed except they've been had a go at probably in the dressing room but you see you can really see some of the tactics at work you can see how he manipulates the team how he'll bring in one person and how it can shift a shape and I think he's done an amazing job and and created his own identity of Chelsea he inherited a ton of different you know a ton of great players but he's been able to craft them into the way that he wants to use them and of course a huge summer signing was Romelu Lukaku and it's been unfortunate we've we've Kind of, you know, we saw him at the beginning of the season. He's been injured, but I'd love to know what you have thought of Romelu and what you can expect from him when he comes back. We we thought we might see him against Man City, uh, Manchester United, excuse me, um, at the weekend. He did, he was on the bench and was potentially available, not quite ready. We will probably see him in the next couple of weeks. What have you made of Lukaku so far, and uh, what do you expect from him in the future? I mean, so far it's been a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? He he came in. Mm -hmm. And I was so excited, you know, genuinely. And I do genuinely think, you know, 12th in the Ballon d'Or yesterday, I think that's completely merited. He is at that level. Um, I think it was it was clearly an adjustment for the team in general to suddenly have a fully-fledged number nine. I think they got quite used to not operating in that way. Um, but I think you saw even early, you know, I remember the game against Zenit where we weren't, we weren't, um, we didn't have that cutting edge at all. We weren't looking like we were going to score. And then suddenly, you know, one cross, one header, bang, he just gets you a goal. And, that, and we've been missing that since Diego Costa at Chelsea. Um, so I think in that way, he's, he is invaluable and he, he's, he's, he will score goals. 
um, and he'll be a huge asset for the team. I think, yeah, in the early days, it was just a case of maybe the press off the ball stuff getting a bit lost in translation with the unit, you know, which is understandable. You're you're fitting in and just adjusting to the team in general because there are so many good players around him who are used to operating without that kind of player. And so I think everyone, it's just a betting in period and everyone, everyone is will is adjusting to that. And I actually think the injury might have come at a good time for him. You know, when he was start, the questions mm. were starting to be asked of him. It was getting a bit, you know, he hadn't scored in a while. And I think just that breather, especially in after the summer at the Euros, just get a few, you know, weeks in, bed in, get to know the manager and the team a bit better. And I'm sure, I'm sure he'll be he'll be back firing soon. Well, Chelsea faced Manchester United on Sunday and it was a 1-1 draw against the side. Chelsea had the majority of opportunities, but it was a pass ball off of Jorginho that Sancho got the best of, took off down the field and, you know, faked Mendy out and got that that goal. You know, it was a it was a tight ball game and Chelsea did have the majority of the chances. And then United have been in the news for all sorts of reasons and it's expected. It's the one of, if not the biggest club in the country. There's a lot going on there. We've got Oli Gunnar Solskjaer getting fired. We've got this guy Ralph Ragnick coming in on an interim basis. There have been questions about a 36-year-old Ronaldo, whether or not he should be starting. We saw Michael Carrick, who's the kind of caretaker, day-to-day manager, sit him against Chelsea, which some people agree with, some don't. Um, I'd love to know your thoughts on Man United in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think United are probably you could I could have answered my Tuchel question by just talking about United, right? Cuz th- there's a club who have <laughs> all the players in the world and and not one manager, you know, but half a manager essentially or now three managers apparently. You know, it's it's <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a crazy situation and it's been a crazy situation for so long. You know, it is hard to see a time in the future when a club that size will have a manager that unsuited to the club or that just that inexperienced for so long. I think it, it, it is unprecedented and I don't think it will happen again. Um, that's not to bash Solskjaer completely. I don't think, you know, he wasn't ready for the job and he probably did better than was expected to. He was, I just don't think anyone would have expected he'd get three years. Um, right. And and I spoke about this last year, yeah. uh, last episode. He was... He could, he could have been fired last year. He could have literally been fired six months into the tenureship. And there was always this thought that he, these might be too big a boots for him to fill. But then this summer, they gave him this massive extension. They commit to him properly. And then six months into it, you know, a t- couple of tough losses. 5-0 against Liverpool. The loss against Tottenham. And then it was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the, the 4-1 to Watford. And the emergency meeting held. And then he gets the sack. I I, I think they've kind of really kind of mishandled this situation from from the get completely um and now they've got this guy ralph ragnick coming in who's going to be the interim manager and then move into a kind of football operations role do you see i i see that potentially as making guys go well oh there's this bloke who's going to manage for six months and then i'm supposed to come in and be like the new you know great guy but i got to listen to what he thinks of the club and that might detract some people from coming in what do you make of the ralph ragnick situation yeah i think it it would I mean, I don't know Ralph Ragnick's relationship with a lot of, with say Pochettino, right? And I think that like, Mm. so I think it might limit your options as to who you can get in as a manager. I think if you were looking to get one of those like Tuchel, Hasenhutl, well, that German generation or German-Austrian generation, um, that it would make sense to get Ragnick because he is the godfather of that, you know? And And I think that 
a coach of, of that magnitude and that level, especially the young ones, would respond to that. But if you're trying to get a Pochettino or a Zidane, are they really going to want to listen to Ralph Ragnick? You know, why, why, especially mm. if they're, you know, at one of the biggest clubs in the world, they want to put their imprint on the club. Um, so I think, I mean, I think it's it's certainly a better state of affairs than it has been for the last three years. I would still trust Ralph Ragnick over, say, Edward Wood or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, like that combo. I think they'll, they'll be in better shape. They'll be instantly in better hands. But you, they might be, you know, spiting, cutting off their nose to spite their face kind of thing. You know, it's one extreme to another. And then who are you going to get in to really build the football club to a place where it, that it needs to be? Um, and you've got to create a team. At yeah. the end of the day, you've got to create a proper team. And, and you know, the the kind of Yankee style of creating a roster where you buy the best players in the, in the, the game and you just have a superstar lineup out there can work and it cannot and I think that you've seen a lot you see there are so many players with such extreme amounts of talent on that club I think of Bruno Fernandes I think of Paul Pogba these guys have gotten so much stick for being so talented and not wanting to play like a team um, and so you know what what can we expect from United in the next couple of months with Ragnick taking over I mean they could go on an FA Cup run do you think there's any chance that they could have a, a sniff at the league? Oh, I, don't, I think the league's out of question at the minute. I think the three teams, uh, A, you know, there's already quite a lot to uh, points to get back. But I just think Chelsea, Liverpool and City are on a, are on a different level. And, I, and I, I think it's really tough to call between those three. But I, think, I don't think there's anyone else going to challenge them. I do think it's just one last thing on the Ragnik situation. The thing I find strange, as you say, is that, OK, you've made this, you've made this decision now. Let's go with it. But it kind of came out of nowhere, right? And it seemed to be, they've suddenly placed a whole load of trust in this one person to be the coach and then the head of football operations after not much mentioned in it in the press. And that's quite rare for United. Usually, you know what's going on at United kind of three days before it comes out. And then there's all this press stuff. and stuff. But it was, it suddenly, kept, there were all this, you know, Zidane, Pochettino, all that talk. And then suddenly Ragnik was the name and suddenly he's the, he's the literal boss of the, the whole club, it seems. Um, so it did seem a little panicked, even if it could be the right decision in the long run. So it, it'll be interesting to see that how that pans out. One of the biggest stories in football is the new ownership group that has taken over Newcastle. And this is, I, I love doing stories like this. We've done, we did this with the Super League, but this is bigger than a football story. This is a financial story. This is a political story. This is a, you know, a, a really dynamic, interesting kind of situation that Newcastle have gotten themselves into with this new ownership group. And there's this unbelievable amount of excitement because they feel like finally we've got one of these huge money investors coming in and potentially going to bring our club back to the, the the heights that Newcastle once were. I would love to know what you, you think of the Newcastle situation, what the expectations that they can realistically set for themselves with this incredible influx of money. And, and what do you think make, will, you know, what do you think the future for Newcastle looks like under this new ownership? I think it would be incredible if they were relegated. <laughs> I will say that, you know, <laughs> um, you know, 
no offense the Newcastle fans out there but I mean I think that is it is incredible that you know that the the tales and twists and turns of, of football the fact that you can be the richest club in the world and yet you know if you're who are you, who are they looking who can they get in in January they're in a serious dogfight right now um and and it will be really fascinating to see which way they go um and what players they can attract because you really don't if you're you know I know that you know, it's the joke but like if you're a Killian Mbappe seriously <laughs> are you really going to risk the future you know the the prime Champions League Ballon d'Or, year, Ballon d'Or years of your career just stake that at six months at Newcastle to get that reversed from relegation you know I really don't think so and obviously I don't think real fans actually expect Mbappe but I do think they expect a serious caliber of a player that warrants the, you know, whatever trillion they have in the bank at the moment. Um, and, and I could see a kind of QPR mold of getting in the kind of golden oldies of the premier league and thinking that will be enough to, to keep them up. And it, 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 sometimes it really isn't. And sometimes when you just get those paycheck players, I've seen it firsthand, you know, Rio Ferdinand at QPR, Jisung Park at QPR, all these players, they really, they, they really weren't good enough and they weren't what was required to keep a club up. So I think it will be fascinating. Um, I think personally, I, I, I find the situation a little disheartening, the whole Saudi Arabia trust fund, whatever that can be legally described as. And, and so I would, I would definitely enjoy them going down, but from an, from a purely footballing perspective, if they do stay up, it would be, I guess, nice to have another player in the top six mix. You know, I have another non, non-United Arsenal, Chelsea, ETC playing to a level that could be Premier League winning. And so I think that'll be, and Newcastle are, a, you know, a big enough club to do that. I just, yeah, the situation of, you know, all the, all the people coming in and with the, you know, all the Saudi flags on Twitter and everything, just if they got relegated, that would be, you know, the story of the century, I think, so far. What what I think would be the best move, and when you, you know, you're a fan, you, your team's just been bought by an ownership group that could throw so much money at huge name players, I think is almost too obvious of a move. What I think would be the best thing for to happen to Newcastle is for them to invest heavily in the structure of the club, mm-hmm. really make their academy top notch, redo all the facilities, redo all of their training. Tra- apparently, their training ground's not been touched since like '99 or something. I mean, like literally, it's you know, ain't, you know, all of their infrastructure needs to be rebuilt, rebuilt up, and an investment into their youth academy. I think is that that is the best move forward, but. In that, in the meantime, to keep themselves up, they might have to overpay, you know, a me, you know, a mediocre but known player, and overpay him and hope for the best. But I think it, what the best thing that could happen for Newcastle in this situation is a, a massive investment in the infrastructure of the club. I, I completely agree with that, and I think you're you're seeing that definitely. It's but the combination of those two two things are a really bearing fruit at Chelsea, aren't they? You know, Reese James is one of the right. the best players in the world right now. I don't even think that's nervous. I think he's that good at the moment. Um, but that's a risk, right? You know, if you if you go down that route and you invest all the, that money in a long term, that is a long term investment essentially, right? And if you are then in the championship in six months' time, 
how do you justify and and what what do the new owners do with that you know i i think it'll be fascinating to see if they did get relegated do the saudis just cut ties and, and then choose someone mm. else um you know who would choose west ham why not um or do they or is this really about a long-term investment and and could do they really want to impose themselves but yeah i think it'll be fascinating to see and and i don't think yeah i'm I'm, i I think eddie howe is a good manager but his last job was one he got relegated in so i don't think he's a he's a guarantee by any means either definitely gonna be keeping my eye on newcastle in the next couple months i think it's gonna be a very interesting situation there and i think back to the beginning of this premier league season at the beginning of the year um people were really getting on Arsenal as they struggled for a couple of weeks to even get a goal, let alone a victory. And it was a tough stretch and they actually faced a lot of really tough teams as well. But a lot of questions came up and then this absolute, absolute moment of hitting the panic button. And there was, you know, what was match, you know, match week four and there was already talk of Arsenal being relegated. Do you think that they, they panicked too early? Now they're in, now they're thinking, you know, oh, we look pretty great. And, you know, Mikel Arteta has really figured it out. And, you know, Emil Smith-Rowe might be one of the best players in the Premier League. What have you made of the Arsenal situation in, in recent days? Is it partly just because the fan base is so unbelievably passionate and they're just disappointed at the idea that they've not, you know, they're not the Invincibles anymore. And, and you know, they're having to create a whole new identity for themselves. Mikel Arteta has had the questions, you know, thrown at him and, and there's been a lot of doubt. I I thought in the moment I went obviously they're not going to get relegated they're far too good to get relegated I mean and we're only a couple of weeks into the season what do you make of where Arsenal's at now and and what what could the future hold for the Gunners I think a, a passionate fan base is one way one way to call it um, yeah <laughs> you know toxic would be another word that comes to mind although I think most <laughs> most fan bases are pretty especially if you look yeah. at social media at the core of them yeah, there's the a bit core, of toxicity toxic, isn't it but, um, <laughs> But yeah, no, there's certain, I think, I mean, I have a lot of Arsenal friends um, in, in my, in my, my, you know, vicinity. And, and I always find it really fascinating to talk to them because they are, there is such a diverse, you know, array of opinions around there. Some are so steadfast, you know, in their belief that they're getting their old Arsenal back and some are just so pessimistic. It's like, you know, I, I remember one saying before the Liverpool game, like, I'd be happy with a 3-0 loss. Like, I'd take a 3-0 loss. Obviously, it was a 4-0. But, you know, <laughs> it, it, and it is that kind of... I do think there has been a general reappraisal of the club in the last two years. And, and the expectations are not that they are even a top four club anymore. I think for the moment that has actually been benched, at least in most of my, my canvassing of my friends. But I, I think for me, I think there was an overreaction at the start, as you say, and now there's an overreaction now. And they kind mm. of, they seem to go in these periods of kind of a crisis and then eight games and then another crisis and then eight games <laughs> or right. 10 games, maybe it'll be 10 games and then it's another crisis. Um, I've, I fundamentally believe Arteta is not the right man for that job. I don't think, I don't think he has the expertise, the know-how, um, the experience to to bring a club like that back to where they could be. I, I don't think, I think it's a tough job for a lot of managers in the world, but I think, again, the Tuchel situation has shown that <laughs> when you put um, your heart before your head in managerial decisions, um, like a Lampard, like a Solskjaer, um, it usually doesn't work. And, and as soon as you get that, that real bona fide tactician in, 
the results are, are pretty clear. And so I don't, for me, Arteta isn't the, the man to take the club forward. What taking the club forward means at this point and whether they can really compete with the likes of Liverpool City and Chelsea, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see. I think, as you say, they do have this crop of really good young players. Um, I think Saka and Smith Rowe especially are really promising, but, you know, who's to say Saka is not at Man City in a year and a half, with all due respect, right. you know? It, it, I, I do. Or, or Newcastle. Yeah. They, they <laughs> or Newcastle, down, exactly. <laughs> um, and, it, and that wouldn't be a bad investment on, on that on that term of it, you know? like And I think about how Arsenal's, you know, why there's this newfound excitement. It is because of these young players, and it is because of what they've done and how and, and the infrastructure of their youth academy, the infrastructure of the club. It's a, it is... And that's why they get so frustrated, I think, because even though they're not playing like a top six club and might not for a, a while, they are essentially a top six club. They're one of the they're, they're a massive, massively supported club around the world. Um, they are one of the biggest names in English football, but they're not playing like one of the biggest names in English football. No, and I, I can't really I can't see them doing it under Arteta, I have to say. I don't think mm. he's got the now. I mean, I'm just thinking back to that. That moment with Klopp at Anfield was so telling to me of two managers at you know a completely other end of the spectrum. You know, it's like half an hour at Anfield, 30 minutes in, your team have been really digging in, really, you know, really playing well actually at Anfield, you know, maybe even having the better first 30 minutes. And and you're and yeah, there was just something about Ateta. He got he got too ahead of himself and he was like, right, let's, you know, we're frustrating them here. Let's frustrate them even more. And it just worked, you know, the complete total. You know, Klopp played him completely, got the fans, you know, completely, you know, woke the fans up, said, come on, you know, look at these guys. And, you know, then they get pumped 4-0. And that was just, there was something about that that was just very naive to me. And I think while while they have Arteta in charge, there will always be that impetulant naivety at the, you know, not at the heart of the club, but always there exposed for the, for the better clubs to really expose that. Hope you're enjoying the episode here with Wilfred Lawrence, but maybe it's just struck you on now. I've got to do all my Christmas shopping. But instead of another year of buying a pair of wacky socks or another candle, why don't you give the brightest gift of the year with Lightbox Jewelry? Lightbox Lab Grown Diamonds are the brightest gift you can give. Using cutting-edge technology and innovative techniques, they've cracked the science of sparkle, creating the highest quality lab-grown diamonds that you can find at a light price of $800 per carat. They have the same chemical makeup as natural diamonds, but they're just grown in a lab. Because of their process, they can create stones in blush pink and beautiful blue, as well as classic white. Visit lightboxjewelry.com to add sparkle to your holiday shopping. That's lightboxjewelry.com. Lightbox diamonds, never a dull moment. Manchester City, uh, the other team from Manchester, had a great deal of question marks around them at the beginning of the season with the sale of Aguero. There was a desire to go out and get a full-time striker. Obviously, they were in on Harry Kane. That didn't pan out because he's serving some sort of prison sentence up at Tottenham. Cristiano Ronaldo, they tried to get him, but Man United wouldn't let that happen. They you know, made sure they brought him back. Gabriel Jesus has kind of become the default striker, even though he's naturally more of a winger. You know, they're still one of the top contenders in the league. We've been talking about them already as, you know, they are just leaps and, you know, it's Liverpool, Man City and Chelsea. And Man City are just leaps and bounds ahead of 
everyone else. And I think partly that's because of the way that he's built the club. There's an unbelievable amount of depth to that roster. It's, it's You look at that bench and it's just like they'd be starting almost anywhere else. There's a January transfer window coming up. Do you think they're going to go for a striker? Do you think they even really need a striker? And, and what's been your take on Man City so far this season? I, th- I don't think they need a striker particularly. I mean, they won the league and got to the final of the Champions League without one. Um, and so I think on the face of it, just from that, I don't think, I, and I, and whether they need one, I guess, is is, a re, is more irrelevant than whether Pep Guardiola actually wants one, which I, I don't think he seems to. Um, I think he's quite happy with having, the, you know, the, the Fodens, the Grealishes, the Bernardo Silvers zipping in and kind of confounding teams with that. Um, I do think, It'll be fast. I think, you know, City are always going to be, as long as Guardiola is in charge, they're always going to be one of the best teams in the world, right? That, that, and with the money that they have, that's just, that's a given. What isn't a given is whether they can, A, keep him um, beyond his, and I think he will go. And when he does go, what does that mean for the club moving forward? And, and will they be able to get a Champions League in time before that? Because I think if they then don't, get that Champions League win and it's still and he's gone and they still haven't won the Champions League then it becomes a bit of a kind of mentality issue a, a European mentality issue and I think there will be a stage where the Premier League is a bit hollow if they haven't won the Champions you know if you're just winning the League Cup and then a Premier League you know every two you're swapping it with Liverpool and you know whoever it is maybe Newcastle are in there but there will be a stage when that no longer means as much to them and then they have to go. I think, and I, I, you know, maybe this is just my perspective, but that got to be the case with Chelsea at the end of the 2010s and the start. You know, it, there got to be a case where it was like, okay, we can win the Premier League and that's great, but we really need to conquer this European hurdle. Um, and I know at the moment, City fans have a kind of love-hate, mainly hate relationship with the Champions League. But I think as as fans evolve and as the club grows bigger that that won't be as much of a thing anymore and i think it will really be a case of that is the main target every year um and i don't i don't know with their current team they they do they confuse me a little because i think they have, there's this such an incredible roster of talent there and and they can they're capable of playing these incredible games and then you know and and they kind of they played us off the park at Stamford Bridge in that one nil in many ways, you know, and it, that was a real, a real interesting touch point um, and a bit of a lesson in many ways, and even though we had beaten them kind of four of the last four times and we were kind of due, I think you could only beat them so many times, but then, then they have these, you know, losses to Crystal Palace or these, you know, barely scraping by Burnley or barely scraping by, you know, ex lower league team. And, and you think, why is that happening? And what is causing that? And, the, and there is a slight fatigue there. Um, and whether that's a fatigue with the Guardiola model or just a fatigue in some of the, play, you know, the Sterlings, the Grealishes who've been at the Euros. I don't know, but there is a slight air of, I don't know, they're not impregnable perhaps as they, they were last season and the, the, season, the seasons before, um, even though they may have improved. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I, that's what I, that's what I was going to bring up next. I think it was a really interesting move bringing Jack Grealish to the club because he fits the model of a Pep Guardiola player almost too much because it's like, well, we got a couple of him on our squad. Yeah. And he's now essentially taken Raheem Sterling's starting spot 
uh, away from him. But then when they all go on an international break, or as we saw this summer in the Euros, it's Raheem Sterling starting ahead of Grealish. Pep obviously sees it the other way around. Um, let's let's live in a fantasy world for a minute, and I'm I'm going to make you the manager of Manchester City. Are you starting Grealish or are you starting Sterling? What's my contract? What are we saying? Because. <laughs> I want, I want to You're be set. You're, you, you've got full commitment. Okay, yeah, good. no problems. A couple of years, they love the Wilf, they love the Wilf model. <laughs> They're sticking with it. The Wilf way. But who are you going with? Um, <laughs> the Wilf way. I um, I I think I will probably, I'll probably back Pep on this one. Well, I think I think there's the there's a case that I don't think either Pep or Gareth Southgate are wrong. Actually, I think there's a reason that Sterling is a better fit for Southgate's England team. Um, and he's just, you know, had a better England career, career so far than Jack Grealish, and I think means more to England than he does Man City at this moment in time, really. Um, and I think that's that's fair enough. And I think you, on the other side, you can see why Guardiola wants a younger, more pressing, more spontaneous side, um, and, and more, you know, spontaneous frontmen especially. So I think. I probably would start Grealish over Sterling. I mean, I don't think I'm Grealish's biggest fan. I think he's an incredible player, but I don't think I wouldn't have I wouldn't have bought him in the first place. Probably actually, I wouldn't have spent eighty million. Yeah. I would have rather yeah. had a striker, um, mm-hmm. just because I think you have you know in, you have Foden and you have Bernardo Silva, um, and I think it's interesting. Like Silva seems to get brought up less in this conversation of around those players. Um, and I suppose he has a slightly different role, but he can play in that role. Um, and there was talk of him being sold in the summer for very, kind of little money. Um, and I just think that's crazy. You look at what he's done. You know, in, in the last few weeks, he's been probably their best player. Um, so I think, yeah, I would probably start Grealish for the for the you know marketing team alone. But um, yeah, I don't. I think there's. I think it's a good option to have, right? You know, you want those two players competing. Um, and I think I would be keen to keep Sterling on side, though. And it'd be interesting to see whether he can, because it doesn't necessarily seem like he is at the moment. And I think Phil Foden is an absolute revelation as well. I thought he was amazing in the summer at points and and just what he's capable of doing and the way he looks. I mean, he's absolutely world-class with this team. And it's, it's just, it, it does strike me, though, that it's when you look at, you look at their depth and and they are an incredibly deep team and and even when they have to deal with an injury like you lose the likes of Kevin De Bruyne you can fill it in with Gidewan uh, who is just amazing i mean <laughs> there's, there's so many amazing options um it just seems like there's a there's a couple of duplicates at the top of the park but look it seems to be working i mean they're still right in the hunt they're not you know they're not going anywhere i think it's a great time of year to be watching premier league football i i love the, the weeks that are coming up because you've got midweek fixtures, you know, Boxing Day games. Um, are there any matches that you've got your eye on in particular? And uh, would you say this is your favourite time of the year in the Premier League season? I think it's, yeah, the fixtures start coming really thick and fast and it is a great, and, and it can really, it, I think it changes the season, right? This is, especially, you know, think about last year, this was the beginning of the end for Lampard very quickly, suddenly. Mm. Um, and I think that will be replicated with other clubs. I think, the, um, the, the masochist in me is really looking forward to um, to United Arsenal um, next weekend. I think that's just such a fascinating fixture, right? And, and such a, a fascinating point in the arc of, of both those clubs. Um, Rangnick's first game in charge, potentially. 
and Arteta, you know, with something to prove. Um, and they and they they do seem, you know, obviously the rivalry is su- that's such a huge rivalry um, that has really gone downhill in recent times. But there there is still a bit of a bite to that game, even when you know it's it's kind of like they were once heavyweights, but they're now both welterweights. But the the intensity is still the same without the same quality. Um, so I think yeah, I'm fascinated by, and I and I have no idea. You could give me eight different results to that, and I would believe you. You know what I mean? That could go so many different ways. I'm also looking forward to Chelsea-West Ham, and West Ham have been pretty fascinating this year, sneaking away with a couple of 1-0 victories and just maintaining themselves at the top of the table. What have you What have you made of Manchester? Uh, sorry, what have you made of West Ham, and do you think that they make a few phone calls to Manchester United to get Jesse Lingard back on their squad? Well, yeah, and, and I wonder if I'm sure United will bring up Declan Rice in that conversation because he's been the the stand-up, standout midfielder in the Premier League this season, I would say. Um, and yeah, I'm terrified of West Ham and that's, that's not a statement I've said very much in my life. Um, but I think they're a really good team. I think Moyes has proved, you know, all his doubters wrong. Um, well, I don't, I, you know, having said that, he, he did do a bad job at Sunderland and Real Sociedad and United, and now he's doing a, a good job at West Ham. That Those two truths can be held. Um, but yeah, I think they are one of the most exciting teams in the league this year. And yeah, I'm, it's just, it's hard to look beyond Declan Rice at the moment as just the fulcrum of that team. And he just seems to be able to do everything, everything for that side. Um so, yeah. And then that's the continued problem of football, though, when you talk about how incredible Declan Rice has been. And then it's like, well, they're also keen to get some more attack. They're, they had a lovely loan spell with Jesse Lingard. They'd want to get him. But then in return, man, you are going to say, well, give us your best player. Then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and exactly. then it becomes the dichotomy of these teams remaining at the top and teams like West Ham who create Declan Rice then have to give up on him. Yeah. And, and, you saw, and, and that's the thing is like, I think their attacking problem is probably less of a problem than United's midfield problem, right? So you're 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 yeah. solving your own problem, but the, the Declan Rice shaped hole in that midfield is so much larger than the Lingard shaped <laughs> hole in, in yeah. West Ham, I would say. Yeah. Oh, I think it's gonna be a great remainder of the season. I always love talking football with you, Will. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks again to Wilfred Lawrence for coming on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to listen today the all-american brit podcast on the believe podcasting network presented by bet online i'm your host johnny McEwen, and until next time take care for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.